Hey, if you ever wanted to see my podcast in person, I've got great news for you. We're bringing Black on the Air to the Now Hear This Podcast Festival in New York City this Saturday, September 9th. And I will be interviewing the very funny, very talented Robin Thede. It's a mini nightly show reunion. It's really going to be a lot of fun. Um, so come on out. Um, have some fun. By the way, one ticket gets you access to all 25 live shows throughout the weekend. And the first 100 people to use our offer code Wilmore at checkout save 20 bucks. Not bad. So go to nowhearthisfest.com to get your tickets. That's nowhearthisfest.com. Enter the free code Wilmore at checkout to save 20 bucks. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air. I am Larry Wilmore. I am Black on the Air. Good to be back here. We have a really, uh, really fun show today with John Favreau and John Lovett of Cricket Media, who have the pod series out right now. One is Pod Save America is the biggest one, and Love It or Leave It, which I was on recently. I think Pod Save the People. They're just going pod crazy over there, those guys. But they were former speechwriters for President Obama. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. We ended up talking for a while. So it was a lot of fun. I don't have a lot this week. I'm going to keep it short because our conversation was kind of long. But um, as I'm talking right now, the whole DACA thing just happened. President Trump pretty much rescinding the executive action that President Obama passed for, I guess, related to the DREAM Act is what it is. And basically allowing, you know, children who were brought here by their parents illegally and who have pretty much just been doing the right thing, going to school, contributing to the country. And DACA was a way for them to, you know, kind of come out from the shadows, be registered. They um, had to pay a certain amount of money for it, you know, and just actually have a little decency and pride and not be in the shadows. It was kind of a a stopgap measure, because the real issue is that the government can't find a decent way to pass immigration reform. And this is a complicated issue, by the way, guys. And it's easy to seem like it's a one side or the other thing. But this is one of those issues that I believe is more complicated than it seems. And with President Trump rescinding, it's so disingenuous. And you know how I feel about the uh, nectarine Noriega. (laughs) Like I said, that's my favorite one right now. With President Trump rescinding the Obama executive order and apparently throwing it to Congress like they're going to do something about it, you know, has made everybody upset, including his own party. It's unbelievable how the president does this. First of all, there was no reason to get rid of this right now. If he really wanted Congress to do something about it, you don't have to rescind it. On the other hand, Obama went into this knowing that this wasn't the right prescription. You know, it was a Band-Aid because Congress could not get anything done in it. And Obama himself said that he did not want to, in fact, didn't say he did not want to. He said he would not pass an executive action on this because he said it would be unconstitutional and it wouldn't hold up. And then he did it anyway. He said, all right, fuck that shit. I'm just going to do this anyway. You motherfuckers can't do anything. So Obama's executive order was never meant to last It can't last because any president can come in and get rid of it. That's the problem with executive orders. And there are some constitutional issues with Obama being able to do that. You know, uh, some of the states were fighting back against this and we're bringing some suits about it and everything. So that's what I mean by it's very complicated. And here's where President Trump's incompetence comes in. He tries to make it seem like he cares about 
you know, the Dreamers, as now they're called, which is, I feel, a very problematic name. And I love them. I think that he said, and we know how he shows his love. Right? <laughs> We've seen that. <laughs> I would be very careful if I was a dreamer. <laughs> so uh, he's going to throw it into the hands of the Republican Congress that wants to do nothing about it. They've made it clear that they want anybody who is not here legally out. Sorry, do not pass go, do not collect $200. You just need to go home. There's no nuance in their conversations. There's been some people who've gone against it, a few, Lindsey Graham and even um, Paul Ryan, I think, surprisingly, was against Trump doing it. But I believe Paul Ryan was more for process reasons more than anything else. I'm from California, you guys. I know that there is a complicated relationship with people who come here illegal. And I have always felt that we are never honest about the illegal immigration problem. We're never honest about it. Each side has their agenda, and each side uh, isn't honest about doing something about it. The fact of the matter is, when people come here, especially, and we're talking about, we're not just talking about illegal immigration. If we're honest about it, we're talking about people who come here from Mexico and come here from south of the border and come from some South American countries through Mexico from the south of the border. We're not talking about Canadian immigrants. We're not talking about people from Germany. So let's be clear about that. And what we're also talking about are people who come here because they want a better life, right? They come here under the in the worst of ways and putting their families at risk when they come here and all those types of things. But what they're really coming for and the history of this, and I'm generalizing, of course, I'm not talking about those rapists that Trump is talking about that come here to rape, right? We're talking about people who are coming here for a better life and they bring their children with them. And many of these people are in jobs that, if we're honest about it, most Americans are not filling up and have not been filling up for a long time. The history of the migrant worker in California goes back years and years and years. This is how people have started their lives, by doing these entry-level jobs that, you know, had horrible conditions and wasn't great pay, but it was their way to get their foothold in America. And we kind of had an agreement. It's kind of this, I, I call it an I ain't mad at you type of position, which to me has always been the best position where it's like, look, if you're going to come in here, if you're going to go through all that and come across here and risk your family for a better life, all right, I ain't mad at you. But at the same time, there are certain things you have to obey the laws. You have to do these things. You can't expect the government to put you first in line for certain things. You know, there are certain things that the government can't do to show favoritism, but at the same time, I ain't mad at you if you're trying to do something better for yourself. There's that middle ground that I think California has kind of done for a long time that I've always kind of been in favor of. But the tough thing is it's hard to legislate that because what it really is, it's a human approach to illegal immigration, not a legal approach. So trying to find that middle ground between what's human and what's legal has always been the problem. Law and order just isn't a matter of following laws to the letter of the law. That's why we have judges, for Christ's sakes. Otherwise, we wouldn't need judges if it was just about the law, right? That's why we're humans. That's why we have to use our heads. You know, compassion is needed in these circumstances. And I think how we, how we uh, look at these things can't be looked at through such a narrow lens, you know, of just legal and illegal. And you did something wrong, you have to go back. It's really not about that. And how we talk about it is very important. And I think we should come up with a new term for what this is. And I'm not sure if Dreamers says it correctly. And I understand people are here because they want the American dream, and that's what they're here for. But anybody who comes here wants the American dream. 
and that's what they come for. But this is separate. If you if you have been here as a child, you've gone to school here, you know, your parents came here illegally, you're going to, uh, maybe you're in the military, or now you're starting to pay your taxes, but you've been here all your life. You're an American as far as I'm concerned. Maybe you're an undocumented American, but you're an American. You don't have another country. So that's a different category than any other category, and we should treat it as such. We shouldn't treat it like it's in the other categories. This is why we have words, guys. This is why we have brains. This is why we have ability to make decisions. We can put different things in different categories. That's why the game show Jeopardy exists, right? <laughs> Look at all the different categories Jeopardy has. If Jeopardy was just one category all the time, it would be worst game show ever, all right? Let's find a different category for this so we can do something about it, so we can use our brains and use our hearts. We don't have to just use one. It's not just a heart choice here, and it's not just a brain choice. There's something in the middle that's a better choice, and it takes into account the real deal of what's happening with these people. So that's my take on it. Anyhow, we got a good show coming up. By the way, uh, the live show in New York is coming up. Um, if you're listening to this before September 9th, me and Robin Thede, I can't wait, guys. It's really going to be a lot of fun. But you're going to enjoy today's conversation with John Lovett and John Favreau, the speech boys for Obama. <laughs> and we get into a lot of nuance. Oh, and next week, pretty soon, uh, Hillary's book is coming out. There's a lot to talk about there. There's uh, some amazing things in that book. So, um, oh, that would be fun if we start a book club or something. Wouldn't that be fun? Like, we should all read Hillary's book, and then we can talk about it. Okay, if you can, if you can get a copy of it or borrow a copy or... If you want to buy a copy or whatever, I'll see if I can get one, too. This is something we could talk about maybe in the next couple of weeks is Hillary's book. I think there's going to be some interesting things in it. Okay, we'll be right back. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to make sure you subscribe to The Watch with Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, two longtime friends who have had this podcast since 1973. Yeah, that's how long. It was even before podcasts they were having this. These guys spent their whole life arguing with each other. And now we just record it and they go at it. They talk about everything pop culture. It is one of the most popular pop culture podcasts, especially valuable during Game of Thrones season. But uh, they'll argue about movies, music, TV, you name it. The Watch, one of the best pop culture podcasts on the internets. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. excited about the two guests sitting in front of me, uh, the access that they have had in their lives in the, uh, has been a rare type of access there. John Favreau and John Lovett, the John and John Favreau and Lovett of Crooked Media. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yes. Uh, it's good to be back here at The Ringer. I know. This is home for you guys for keeping it 1600. Uh, right. Last time I sat yeah. on the set, I, don't I was, it. <laughs> I think, <laughs> weeping on yes. election night. <laughs> no, no, it was the next morning after my car broke down. Oh, that's right. Way to talk about the day after. And that's were you guys broadcasting on election night? Yeah, we were doing a streaming live show with the whole crew here. 
and watching the whole thing go to shit. And then, yeah, and then we came back the next day to do a long pod, and Lovett's car broke down on Sunset, and we pushed the car. By breakdown, I mean I ran out of gas. Yes. But Trump just had become president, so I was not focused. And no one was on the street anyway at that point. Right. What was that like on election night when you're doing, because you're doing the pod in real time as it's happening. Did you have monitors on or TVs watching it? Yes. Did you have a certain network or different networks? How many did you have? I don't know. I think we were switching back and forth between CNN and MSNBC. Even now, it's like I feel that feeling coming (laughs) back. I I actually had to apologize Uh later because I had not like a professional moment of anger, but like a true unprofessional moment of anger because it was early on, Mm -hmm. or it wasn't early on, I was was not ahead of the information at all, Mm -hmm. but... uh, it was becoming clear that this really could be happening. And some yeah. people were joking and I couldn't hear the television. And I just turned to a group of strangers and screamed like, this may actually be happening. Yeah. Nobody knows what it sounds like before a plane crashes. Yeah. <laughs> very very wow. cheery. I remember watching it at home and just watching it and I just started thinking, oh, fuck, <laughs> this might happen. Like my voice started, went up about three octaves. <laughs> you know, I'm there by myself. Yeah. It was so unbelievable how it unfolded. It was very surreal, wasn't it? It was, yes. I, and you start, I mean, you go through all the stages. And I just, I wouldn't let go that there was still a chance, you know. And so yes. I was texting everyone I knew. And there's a lot of people who worked for Obama in 8 and 12 who were like, you know, I've been talking to the people in Michigan in mm-hmm. the boiler room and just wait till it, it won't be called till like five or six in the morning, mm-hmm. but they'll call it then and it'll be for her. There's enough vote out there. Right. And, you know, they kept saying that and saying that. And then it would just you're like, nah, that's not that's not happening. Did you go, did you guys relate to the people in the insiders <clears throat> you were watching it? Were you could you would you like what would <laughs> what was going through your mind in terms of the Hillary camp? Because I was surprised that she never even came out and made a statement. Yeah. You know, to the people in Javits Center. Was that surprising to you at all? I It wasn't super surprising because I thought that they must be thinking, we need all of the facts. Mm-hmm. We need to be positive before we go do this. They probably had memories of Gore v. Bush. 2000. And also, I think you're in denial at that point, yeah. and it's hard to finally accept. I'm glad she finally did go out, but yeah, absolutely. I wasn't thinking about the people in the Clinton campaign as much. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about like we are this. We are so fucked right now. Like yeah. we are all of us are fucked in a way we've never been fucked before. Yeah. I had a moment. I wa- I was here, and I, I I it was it was still when it was still early enough in the night that we mm-hmm. thought, well, she's going to win Pennsylvania. And Michigan, I'm sorry, she's going to win Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, mm-hmm. but it's now close enough that we have to win Michigan. And, you know, we were talking to people uh, and hearing from people on the ground in Michigan saying that this is too close and we're not seeing the votes we need. While at the same time, we were hearing from people looking at the data elsewhere mm-hmm. that 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 Michigan was going to be called in her favor. And, and now all of a sudden, that was the first moment where I was like, oh, this really is now at the moment where it could go either way. And I walked outside on the phone uh, and I, I called my family and I was saying, just saying it out loud for the first time, that she has to win Michigan and she may not win. And if she doesn't win Michigan, he's president. And I looked over to my right and there were a bunch of background actors waiting online for sandwiches. Uh-huh, and I hilarious. felt like I was in the Langoliers, like I was 10 <laughs> seconds ahead. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> and uh, uh, I just had this, like, I, I kind of like, doubled over for one second. Yeah. I just like kind of like in a sharp pain. It just sort of hit me all at once. And then we came upstairs and was like, oh, this is yeah. this is still happening. Really going on. And it's funny because in the rear view, 2016 makes 2008 seem like so long ago. Yeah. 
you know, and um, so long ago it feels like the future. Yes, <laughs> isn't that true? It's like the loop came back around. It's like, boy, if we could ever have that first black president, yeah, we'll have great. to make progress and elect Barack Obama again. Yes. Now, John, you were a part of Obama's team at that point, right? Yes. Uh, Favreau, uh, <clears throat> love it. Were you part of the team at that point? I was a part of Hillary's team. Oh, that's right. You were part of Hillary's team. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, what was the feeling? Oh, and two over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fool me once. <laughs> well, first of all, I want to go back to, to both your origin stories and sure. how you got involved with the Obama campaign and with Obama himself. Uh, you started with the Kerry campaign? I was with the Kerry campaign. Mm-hmm. Speaking of awful election yes. nights, same thing happened, basically. We, the exit poll said Kerry was going to win, and then he did not. I still um, don't understand that exit poll, by the way. That You never look at the first wave of exit polls. Yeah. There's just It's like you might as well pick numbers out of right. a hat. Um, anyway, so I started on the Kerry campaign. I had interned with him in college, and so that was my first job out of college. I was a press assistant. Mm-hmm. I worked my way up to deputy speechwriter. Mm-hmm. Kerry lost. Um my first boss in the Kerry campaign was Robert Gibbs. Um, I was his assistant. And then he had left the Kerry campaign to work for Obama on the Senate race. Uh-huh. So when Obama won the Senate, Gibbs said uh, he needs a speechwriter. He's never worked with one before. He's, oh, he just Obama just did his own thing. Right? He did. He wrote the 04 convention speech in Boston himself. That was there. No blue states. And yes. No red states. And it's like, why you got to lie to the people, Obama? What is, <laughs> it sounds good, but why you got to lie to the people? There's only one America. There's no America. Yeah. See, it does seem like. <laughs> There's no racist America. <laughs> like, a, like a century ago now. I know. Yeah. Um, it was uplifting. Though. It was uplifting. Uh-huh. Yeah. We forgot about that. We, uh-huh. we could use that today. Yeah. Um, and so Gibbs said, you know, he doesn't want a speechwriter. He uh-huh. wants to keep writing stuff himself, but he's going to be a senator with a national profile and he's not going to have time. Right. So would you be interested in sitting down with him? Uh-huh. So I sat down with him his first week in the Senate. Did you have an opinion about him at that time? I had, yes. Uh-huh. I had. I was on the floor of the convention at 04 when oh, he delivered wow. that speech. What, what was it like in there? Was it really electric? Or? Yes. It yeah. was insane. Yeah. I, was, I was there too, but I had, I was there uh, with a documentary film crew uh-huh. Stealing badges to get closer and closer <laughs> to the floor because I was like a year behind you, <laughs> so I didn't have funny. a I was just like sneaking my way in. Right. Yeah, so I, I I had really liked him because of that speech, but then when I heard that the job was a possibility uh, over Christmas, I read Dreams from My Father, mm-hmm. and even more so than his speech, reading that book, I was like, I cannot believe someone who's this honest is going to be a U.S. senator, someone mm-hmm. who wrote about race like this, who talked about drug use. I'm like, if he's going to be a national politician and try to succeed, I want to be part of that and see if it actually works. Yeah, I almost felt like dreams from my father where it was in the sales world, they call answers to the objections that he put out there first. You know, you ever done drugs? Read my book, motherfucker. <laughs> and it works. Yeah, that shit's already out there. I don't have to hide anything. It's a know? lesson to politicians. Maybe yeah. Trump read it. And he thought, it, look Trump what you did can get away thing. with. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Trump did it. He took it to a whole nother level, which I want to get to in a second. So so you got with Obama, and you were with him during the whole campaign against Hillary, right? Yes. Do you remember, what? and you were working, You mm-hmm. were, were you writing for Hillary at yes. the time? Yes. Mm-hmm. And what was, now, there seemed like an inevitability in 2008. It had to feel that way inside of there, right? Uh, no. Really? <laughs> no, uh, it, I would say it was... Everyone so, thought it was going to be Hillary and... And Giuliani. Yeah. So, the, so right. Oh, right. oh, sorry. So, really? right. There was an inevitability that she would be the nominee. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember that, and I remember that slowly slipping away because it. So she was the inevitable nominee, but then once the voting started, she was never winning. 
And we used to have the wow. same. She was never, there was never a point where she was ahead. No, we, just in the polls before the voting started. Wow. So, so I mean, we, we, she, was, she was 20 points ahead in the national polls in yeah. September of 07. And right. we thought like it was the end for us. Yeah. And Obama never really had a good debate during those times either. No, ba- yeah. passable. Yes. By the end. It was okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, but we used to, pre- to as, as the nominating process went on, we had this ability to predict the outcome mm-hmm. of Super Tuesday and other uh, primaries and caucuses because we knew that she would do well enough to have a very legitimate reason to stay in the fight, but not well enough to change the dynamic. So mm-hmm. we knew, it was just sort of, we knew we were in for this yeah. long slog. Now, let me ask you this, because... Being speechwriters, crafting what the language is and all that, was there a moment where you felt there was a rhetorical shift? Like, in, like for instance, Hillary, the manner in which she spoke and her demeanor and everything, she felt like the, the front runner. But then there was a moment where that changed. Did, could you feel that in just in the rhetorical yes. aspect of it? Yeah, for, for us, it was the Jefferson Jackson dinner in Iowa uh-huh. in November of uh, 2007. Uh-huh. And I mean, Obama throughout most of the campaign in 2007 was giving a very long, winding <laughs> yes, those stump were, speech. Those professorial they both were, type they both were going up there for an hour. But yeah. because in Obama's mind, oh, it, Hillary was too. Yes, yeah. but in Obama's mind, it was she's the policy wonk. People think she's the weightier candidate than me, and I'm just a flash in the pan, right. give an exciting speech guy. So I'm going to go out there every day for 40, 45 minutes and list every detail I know about policy. And he thought that was the best way to compete with her. And what the, the Jefferson Jackson speech was a forcing mechanism for him because they said each candidate gets 10 minutes, no more, no prompter, no re- prepared remarks. You have to memorize your speech. Yeah. And so for us, that was like our last chance to make an argument that was 10 minutes. And we didn't have a lot of policy in it. Uh-huh. It was why he should be president and she shouldn't without sure. naming her, which made it an inspirational speech that was still a speech that just, you know, tore her apart yes. <laughs> in, implicitly, though, uh. um, without naming her. And that that once he did that, that's when we he kind of hit his stride. And that was that. I thought with the black vote, too, when... Bill Clinton, who's always the wild card, with, in, whenever, <laughs> he is whenever Hillary runs. I mean, he is metaphorically and literally the wild card. Yes. You know, but what he said, oh, this is all some fairy tale and everything. I remember black people. Biggest like, fairy tale ever. Yes, exactly. That's funny because a lot of black people weren't on the Obama train at that time. They, you know, they were very loyal to the Clintons. You know, they were kind of feeling it out. That's, that black was, people didn't think Obama had a chance. That was know? in the, he said that during the shift. Because yes. Basically, up until Iowa, he did not have a lot of support in the African-American community. Right. He wins this 99% white state. And we're like, what? And I, right. And then <laughs> between Iowa and South Carolina is when everything shifts. And, and Bill Clinton makes that comment about the Iraq war being the biggest fairy tale he's ever seen, the Iraq war position in New Ham- around New Hampshire. Uh-huh. That's when, because it got, that's, the Clintons drove themselves crazy yeah. after losing Iowa, and it did not help their cause between Iowa and South Carolina. This is a fun time to live. <laughs> yes. Really enjoying this part of the conversation. Yes. Let's get to the the other election that uh, makes me feel like I want to die. No, we won't get there. <laughs> so let's talk about writing for Obama. Okay. Yeah. What was because I'm you know I was a big fan of West Wing. I was always fascinated by the writing right. of the president. And I think a lot of people don't get to see behind the curtain of that. Uh, what, what was the toughest part about writing for him? Um, was it a hard thing to do, or or was it one of those easy marriages? Um, 
there were there were easy parts and tough parts. The, mm-hmm. the most difficult part was, um, and for me, this was because I worked for John Kerry, mm-hmm. and it's nothing particularly bad about John Kerry, but most politicians... <laughs> Levitt's making a facial yeah. right answer. No, but. like, most politicians <laughs> speak like politicians, and they speak in sound bites yes. and poll-tested lines and all that stuff, so... And I think that's why we have to... Da, 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 and da, here's da, my da. applause line, and here's my sound bite, and middle-class, blah, 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 jobs. We can't, um, move the, we can't move the forward to the middle. It's time to move the middle forward. Yeah, <laughs> Right. We're going to go of. backwards, or are we going to go upwards and that's what we need in america and you america everyone cheers you know um so i had to learn all i learned that style of writing while in the Kerry campaign and i had to unlearn it when i started working for obama because obama hadn't been a politician his whole life mm-hmm. and he was he was an author he was a writer and he had that sensibility and so he was like i don't want to speak in cheesy sound bites and cliches i want to speak like a and normal even human better being better sound bites and less <laughs> cheesy well he is somebody it was a learning process. <laughs> exactly. i had to unlearn writing like for a typical politician and then as time went on obama had to learn to write to sound a little more like a politician uh-huh. because as an author, as a writer, he would have sentences that would go on for paragraphs. Yes. And so he had to tighten up a little bit and he had to sort of force himself into some sound bites and inevitably cliches, you know, slipped in there, right. especially by the time we were in the White House. But so that was sort of the back and forth. And John, I was, was going to say, I mean, I'm going to make a meandering point, but it ends in a compliment for you. Sure. Okay. Uh, no. So I, I was thinking. I won't like, interrupt it. I'm <laughs> just letting you know in advance. Uh-huh. Uh, like I was thinking being a speechwriter, you, you don't have to be the best or even excellent at one thing. You need to be good or very good at, a, at, at different things at the okay. same time. So you need to be able to, you know, work within a political organization mm-hmm. and make people feel like they're being heard even when they're not. You need to be a competent writer. You need to understand politics. You need to have a basic understanding of policy. And then the final piece, which I think is really hard, is you need to be able you need to either naturally have the voice of the person you're working for or have the ability to fake it. Right. Um, and that's yeah, that's why I think it's good to work for people you agree with and why I think it's pretty scuzzy when there's like mercenary speechwriters who will write for anyone, even if it's despicable. That's funny. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, I, I often think that like, you remember Mystique in uh, X-Men, how being pretending to be someone, mm-hmm. it takes a little bit of her strength and she's actually strongest when she's just blue. Right. It's like, I think... John had a really natural ability because I think he and Obama are in sync in a lot of ways. And Mm -hmm. so I think for a lot of, I think speech writing is generally you kind of, the first thing you do is try to figure out how to write in someone's voice and then you bring your kind of skills to bear. But the more you're naturally like that person, I think that you, the better you serve them, which is why I think John was so naturally suited to succeed with Obama. Mm -hmm. On the... it that really was the compliment. Like a, Thank you. Thank well, you well, the fact that you wrote the inauguration <laughs> and some of his more important speeches. And Levitt, you wrote a lot of, let's say, jokes or funny things yes. for Obama. You know, it's, that seems like a different thing that has to be. You have to distill things in a different way, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I, I ended up, I feel like I had like these two baskets of things that I did. One was the driest of policy speeches and like a, <laughs> I, it was, like, a lot of like right. finance speeches and around the economic crisis. Would like, you try to find jokes in those things or just uh, you just left it alone? <laughs> look at these. Once in a while. I, yeah, I don't know. Mm. You know, look at these prices. I don't have a joke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> man, if this stock market falls any lower, I mean, that's what it was like at the beginning. Yeah. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, writing the jokes was fascinating. So one of the advantages was that Barack Obama has this innate natural timing, which is very annoying, right? Mm-hmm. Because he's like handsome and dashing. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, you have good timing? You don't deserve that. You have no business yeah. having it. Better. 
as he, he did. Into, he got really he got good. into it, which is yeah. like he's a stand-up who does it once a year, yeah. and he still asshole. got. <laughs> <laughs> as somebody who had to follow him, trust me. Oh, that's right. <laughs> it's um, tough. It's tough, but like, uh, so it's like the at the comedy club. Okay, Larry, you're going to last. You're going to follow the most important man in the in the United States. Like, uh, and by universe. the way, the bar is much lower yes. for him. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like it's like there's an, it's an open mic. It's an yeah. open mic. Uh, then mm-hmm. it's prior, and then you're up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how come? <laughs> uh, and he's going to do an hour. Good yeah. Luck. <laughs> so yeah, so he he has this, and the other part of it was that uh, he wanted to be not just funny for a politician, but he wanted to be funny. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I, you know, I wrote jokes for a bunch of different politicians over the years. I wrote jokes for Hillary, and but doing the correspondence dinner for Barack Obama was this confluence of the dinner got more attention all of a sudden. Like mm-hmm. people start caring about it more. Yeah. Uh, he liked doing it. I think a lot of other he presidents did. haven't. He, and, and and we had a great group working on it. Also, the jokes were like everything else with him. It was. The jokes were true to his own personality yeah. and a sense of humor and it's and, and to what he believes about politics. So yeah. he thinks politics, as much as he believes in it, is also completely fucking absurd. And it's this <laughs> game that you should point at and make fun of. And so all of the best jokes for him would thus be yeah. the jokes about how crazy the political game is. Yeah. And he mastered the pause and the smile. Right. You know, so <laughs> you, I thought you guys wrote to that really well where he'd say it, pause, and then just... Pause a little longer than you think, and then he just laughed. He did that. He did that, that smile, and it was all. I know how manipulative that is. You know, as a performer, he did that shit on purpose. You know, but well, he a, he, yeah. he mastered that pause and smile. It's a very like yeah. I'm in on it. Yes, I exactly. Get it. I, I and know. He draw this you is, into. Yeah. He wouldn't even need a punchline after that. The, be, the, yeah. the when he would laugh when we would slip a joke into a speech last minute and uh-huh. he may not have seen it before yeah. and then he'd actually laugh before uh-huh. that was always that was always yeah. great yeah. The, the other thing too is we had this great group of people I felt like we had a natural balance so um, you know I feel like Axelrod would write some more like kind of avuncular nicer jokes that were more kind of everybody's <laughs> in this together and my best version of a joke is just Obama knocking over the podium and just shouting at the top of the lungs, like, you're all morons. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I think we'd end up kind of, and John would work on this too, and kind of end up shape, like kind of getting it to a place where it was the mix of those things. Yeah. yeah. Axe would always be telling us to not be so mean. Uh-huh. And we would always be wanting to yeah. like Knife punch, punch yeah. it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, did you, uh, were you still there for the 2013 correspondence dinner? The famous, uh, Seth Meyers one. Oh, that's just 11. 11. Oh, that was yeah, 11. Yeah, yeah. That we were there. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, that was. We, we caused us. Yes. <laughs> um, and a lot of people <laughs> feel that that's responsible for Trump becoming president, unfortunately. So it is uh, not. Yes. It is not responsible. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. Uh, when Bernie decades, won, we don't know. Decades of cultural, political, and economic decline are the reason that Donald Trump is president. It's <laughs> yes. not a, a, night of, a night of yuck yucks is not responsible. Yes. Uh, but Although it, we're dealing with Trump. Yeah. Now, you're not factoring in the craziness of Trump himself, The of Trump thinking, oh, they're going to bring this shit. I mean, he's not like that's going on through his mind like that. But, you know, Trump being so embarrassed that he decides, fuck this, I'm going to run. He was angry. Sure. He said, I was sitting right behind him. Oh, really? Yeah. And he's he, watching his face, and he, he was anything? very, very angry. Yeah. He didn't. I, I didn't hear him say anything. He went he, from like he, orange to burnt. He Sienna, said he right? he yeah. he yelled at Seth later. Myers. He said something to Seth. He said Trump you were did? yeah. He, he said you were angry. way way too tough on me. That was not fair. He's he always yelled? been more angry at Seth than he was at Obama. And then of course there's Donald Trump. Donald Trump has been saying that he will run for president as a Republican, which is surprising since I just assumed he was running as a joke. <laughs> Thank you.
Gary Busey said recently that Donald Trump would make a great president. Of course, he said the same thing about an old rusty birdcage he found. Yeah, he thought Seth's jokes really? were, were super cutting. And they were, yeah. I mean, they were tougher than Obama's jokes because Obama was, yeah. you know, president. But, um, but Obama's, uh, Obama's apprentice joke was fantastic. All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, for example, uh, no, seriously, just recently, in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice, at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. That, that was so that was that was me and was Apatow yeah. on oh, the Jack. phone. Yes. So good. we would before all the dinners. So I think the year before we were going into the Oval to talk about jokes and he was on Apatow was on a Judd was on a tour. Uh-huh. And I don't know. My, my social graces are, would you say, subpar? Limited. Uh, so <laughs> I don't, and I never read cues. So we were about to go into to work on the jokes, and I bumped into him, and we had met like previously, and I said, oh, you know, John and I are about to go in and work on the jokes. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, I'd love to help with jokes. And I said, oh, we'd love your help. And then I just turned around and walked away, because I, I, it felt beyond my place to invite him, and then I, my, my brain gets scrambled in social sure. moments. Right. Anyway, he then told a story about... Uh, me cock blocking him from helping with jokes for the correspondence center. <laughs> and, so, uh, and, and so I reached I out and said, we, yes, uh-huh. he told it on, he told it, I think to like Leno or Fallon or something. And so ever since we, we would talk about jokes uh, before these various dinners and uh, he would just get on the phone and go back and forth. But mm-hmm. basically we had this long thing about the apprentice and we turned it into this super long, uh, much longer rant. I walked into the office and love is on the phone with Judd and he's like, Judd's got an idea for this joke about the apprentice. And he starts repeating it. It's this long, long bit. And I was like, okay, that's one of the funniest things I've heard. I cannot imagine any politician <laughs> delivering that joke because it's, right. it's not a punchline joke. It's yeah. like a whole, and so, but I was like, let's like shorten it. Let's try to make it tighter. And then let's bring it to Obama and just see. And we brought it to Obama and he, he could read not stop us. laughing and he read it again and again. He's like, I love this. I'm was, in. That, was that during the, was that the one meeting? Was that earlier or was that? The, it was the, a meeting before the one where he had one, just yeah. ordered the, uh, Bin Laden raid, Bin Laden raid. <laughs> Which he did that same, same, same night. Yeah. Yes. One of those con- it will, that found- dinner and night it turned out to be so consequential on yes. so many fronts. It really was. You know, I don't I think the Trump mocking arguably was more significant than the Osama killing. Yeah. Yeah, at least. I it, mean, what kind least, of world at are least we he in, was guys? like stuck in a cave, you know? Trump's Yeah. <laughs> it's it's pretty you, bad. You, uh, yeah, you killed a guy who was stuck in a cave, and you brought a caveman out to the world. <laughs> That's uh, another thing. With This is what I don't understand, guys. It seemed like Obama's oratory talents, let's call them, his ability for the soaring oratory was always held in contempt. Yeah. Always. You know, even from the beginning, in a way that I had never seen <clears throat> that type of skill held in contempt, like saying he's an empty suit, that's all he had. You know, and that and that type of thing. Of course, I always took it as racist personally. It's like, why when the brother can speak like this, everybody right. has a problem with it. But the flip side of that is Trump's caveman, you know, utterings 
is like always excused and held as revelatory, and he's so honest and direct. Um, please explain. I, I I think the Obama <laughs> the Obama criticism is two things. One is is jealousy. There's an envy there, and it's also You know, his opponents knew that that was his superpower. Let's say right mm-hmm. that he can give this big uh, speech, and so by attacking that. They wanted him. They wanted to bring him down and have him not use it. Like I remember, he used to in, make fun of the teleprompter. I remember the whole thing. Yes. But I remember, yeah. remember the McCain campaign had this ad uh, when Obama went to Berlin and gave that big speech during mm-hmm. the campaign. They said he's the biggest celebrity in the world, and they yes. got Britney Spears, and they're making Which fun was of him. So and, dumb. And yeah, he's on the cover of Dear Speaker. But I remember. By the yeah. way, lesson there. Yeah. Um, we like that. Right. Well, so <laughs> right. I remember that got to us. And there was an internal decision within the campaign that for a while we were not going to have Obama do big rally speeches. <laughs> I remember that. that he was going to do small events with a few people around him yeah. and just get down to the ground, close to the ground, He's is what they said. He's going to be more said. like an indie rock band. So, you know? so <laughs> he, it was Obama unplugged. So he, yes, Obama unplugged. So, Obama, so he starts doing those events, but he does them around the same exact time that Sarah Palin's named to the ticket, oh, and she man. starts giving these huge rallies, yeah. and everyone's going crazy. Who and wants born to run acoustic? And so you've got these, you <laughs> got these, you got these. <laughs> Split screen with Sarah Palin and John McCain in these huge crowds getting all riled up because of Sarah Palin. And then you have Barack Obama in some kindergarten with five kids around him and a couple of reporters. And he's like, today I'm here to talk about early childhood education. And I'm like, see, they fucking got us. Like, no, we got to get back out there and do the big crowd stuff. Redfish. Bluefish. No, 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 no. There's more than one bluefish now. You know, it's I remember being on the other side of that feeling, right? Because I was on with Hillary and all of a sudden, you know, Obama's is here and he's this he's this great speaker and everybody Mm -hmm. loves him. And I remember I remember like what my problem was, if I could. It's hard for me to remember now, but I think I remember just thinking there's nothing to this guy, like because I was so used to being able to just see on the faces of our politicians their big character flaws as Mm -hmm. their motivation, like the hole in their heart that they fill. And you can just see that with every president in my lifetime. You can see it with George W. Bush. You can see it with Bill Clinton. And and you can see with every senator on the Hill, you know, you can see the, the insecurity or the ambition or the chip on their shoulder, yeah. the something they're trying to prove. And I, I remember worrying that, like, I don't understand what makes Obama tick. I don't get it because I don't see the brokenness. And I think hmm. that in hindsight, like to me, I like this is, I mean, the most earnest I will, I will get, which is I think that the the sin of the arrogance to believe he could do the job is a sin every person who runs for president has to have, mm-hmm. and I think he has that in spades. But, but the uh, reason it was so hard for you to believe that is the reason it, is the second big reason people uh, attack him about that is this deeply, deeply ingrained cynicism that there would be a politician who does who has motives that are not purely self interested. Mm-hmm. Well, not to say that he does he he has self interested motives as well. He wants sure. to be a politician, all that kind of stuff. He wants to be president, but. We don't look at leaders like if you're giving an inspirational speech like that, your first instinct is like, oh, what what bullshit is that? Or like, what kind of crap is he selling us? Right, you know? because, because there's some I, ulterior motive. Because what I came to see in my time at the White House was, oh, this was actually a lot simpler than I thought. There's no there's no dark underbelly. He's just a like he is a sincerely confident person who believed he could do some good for the world like flawed yeah. flawed in many ways but yeah. sincere but right. sincere and I, and and that i think that that 
the reason you saw this spate, this spate of books that are like the real Obama in the second term, the real Obama is going to come out. I think it's two things. I think it's one, uh, racism. Yeah, obviously. Right. But I think that the, I have that as one and two, but go ahead. Sure. One, yeah. two and three and five are racism. But four, I think, was both this cynicism that is universal, but then also specific to Obama that everybody was saying, like, what? who's the real guy? Where's the broken version? Mm-hmm. He also didn't have the fear that you get when you've been in politics for a long time, which is this fear of losing. Like everyone says, oh, what drives politicians? Money, ambition, stuff like that. Mostly the fear drives them. They are so afraid of saying something that's going to be taken out of context or used to attack them yeah. or that's not going to be popular. Howard Dean made a little sound and he was done. Ah. And it's yeah. that kind of, and it's that kind of shit. Ah. That was it, what? And like, you think t- about how far we've come. <laughs> yeah. That noise was in, that noise was disqualifying. Yes! An, a guttural, ah. a guttural that moan. could have been a burp. That, I, that got make, out of control. Howard Dean scream would make, would make Twitter for 10 seconds today and that yeah. would be it. It would be forgotten that would be then it would be moved on to the next thing it was fascinating yeah what's interesting my take on obama and i don't know how you feel about this being on the inside i I said this recently was i felt obama was a great orator but not as great as a communicator you know like i am but what i mean by that is the essence of who he was never clearly came across to me Mm -hmm. but the the flourish of what he saw kind of did in some ways but it was always a general flourish you know, hope and change, you know, uh, red state, blue state, like these general things. But um, there was never a, hey, I'm going to get you a job, you know, like that type of direct thing. Or yeah. or uh, like Bill Clinton had an uh, interesting ability t- to make you feel like he was speaking directly to you. Where Obama, it felt like he was speaking to the world, you know, and... For some reason, he so he he, he had the the broad paintbrush. It seemed like yeah. he was more comfortable in that setting. Mm-hmm. But he also he's very allergic to anything he thinks might seem like artifice. Mm-hmm. And I think once in a while he would view what Bill Clinton did or what a John Edwards yes. would do, like I feel your pain kind <laughs> right, of thing. Right. It's coming across as a little phony. Well, even though it, it was bullshit, bullshit actually works when it gets translated See, he, through television. And he can't, he yeah. would never abide by it. And that was his problem right. during debates is he would say, well, I don't have enough time during debates to really make my case. And, you know, then they come up with these one liners and then it's, uh, you know, you have to yell at the other person mm-hmm. in order to get noticed in a debate. And I don't want to attack someone. Sincerity and, is something you have to work at as well. Authenticity is a skill. Yes, it is. And, and, and mm-hmm. we would tell him it's not on the level. Yeah. And he thought, he thought that politics he at least entered politics thinking that a lot of it was on the level. Yes. And really? learning learning that it wasn't a, I think he not a lot. I, I mean, mean he, he knew the broad outline. Chicago guys. It doesn't get more corrupt than right. Chicago. <laughs> yeah. So he knew the basics, but the performative aspects, I yeah. guess, right? Like no knowing what you have to do to perform that's right. not just give an inspiring speech, right? Yeah. That it's like have a one-liner, have a soundbite, attack your opponent, do this, do that. That's the stuff you had to learn. I think there's some truth <laughs> to the problem of persuasion during the Obama administration. That, yeah. that, that, but I, I think, I, and, and I think there are some criticisms that are valid there, but, but I think that there's a larger issue around where per- persuasion now sits, like in the way we talk about politics. Yes. Uh, and uh, just how little of it is possible, mm-hmm. how little of it plays a role in our day-to-day Conversation. Persuading I mean, people? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the, the first two years or three years of the Obama administration are defined by crisis. They're defined by yes. emergency <clears throat> around the financial system and economic collapse uh, and the passage of 
like the Wall Street bill and stabilizing the economy and the car industry, et cetera, mm-hmm. and the housing industry. Then you move right into this very big healthcare fight, which started as a persuasion effort. Uh, mm-hmm. Six months with Grassley and Collins and Snow. Uh, remember bringing all of these Republicans to uh, uh, Blair House to have this conversation public, like an attempt to yeah. try something different. Because he genuinely, I was going to say, he genuinely thought debating a bunch of Republicans on TV about healthcare would yield fruitful results, uh, and, 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 <laughs> and he would be able to convince them. Especially wow. because the proposal that Democrats had united behind over the previous eight years was ultimately a moderate compromise after the failure of Hillary Care. Mm-hmm. So the idea that right. you could put this forward and bring these people in. And and I think there was a sincere belief that you would get three, two, four Republican votes in the Senate. And and that w- would be how this, this worked. But following the crisis and all the distrust that followed and, and TARP and all the rest and the bruise, bruising fight over health care and then the loss of the House and just years of a stalemate, yeah. there was no role for bringing there there was the the way our politics the way parties talk to each other and about each other did change yeah i think uh, the tea party i felt had a lot to do with that at the time um they really i think exacerbated the effect of being primaried and that sort of thing on the republican yeah. side you know and i don't think any republican had any interest in being associated with any kind of obama legislation during that period they were look they were more afraid of a primary challenge than they were of a general election opponent yeah. because and, that's and, first <laughs> yeah right. and if Simple you can't that. and that's yeah. not a calculus you can change with words with persuasion and with speeches mm-hmm. and so that's a tough lesson to learn as president of the united states yeah let me ask you this guys um what is your opinion and not necessarily your uh your opinion about trump but what is your opinion about Trump using Twitter as a communication tool? Because, I mean, in some ways, I guess it can be effective, but in other ways, uh, it can be very destructive. And I think it's changing so much right now in terms of how the president communicates. Do you guys have a just a personal opinion about his use of that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's <laughs> hasn't been so constructive. Uh, but look, I think... Well, in terms of his the people who support him, yeah. Like for instance, so I firmly believe that Trump is not interested. the 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 Trumpism movement right now is not in a fight for right and wrong. All the criticism is about right and wrong and what's proper and improper. They're in a fight, you know. With there's an assault on the right, and it's coming from the left. It's coming from establishment. It's coming from, even from the right establishment. And that Trump is the leader of that fight. And so everything that he does. Is, is about that fight. And so when he makes these outrageous statements that everybody else thinks is horrible and wrong to his followers, it looks like he's the guy who's in there fighting. Yeah. You know? well, I, I think it can be incredibly effective as a tool. Like, I think it's a, mm-hmm. ultimately a good thing. I also think it's just a tool, right? Like, mm-hmm. we're, we're saying that his tweets are horrible because he is horrible, right? And I think... Yes. Like, my, my, my big problem... <laughs> I agree with my, that. my problem is, I think that so many politicians see Twitter as an extension of their press office releasing a press statement. Mm-hmm. And so when you watch a lot of these politicians and their tweets, it's like timed tweets that are going to be sent out in the middle of the day that don't have to do with anything that's going on in the news. It's like, a sound I support mm-hmm. jobs, just a reminder, you know? And... If I would advise every candidate to control your own Twitter feed, 
make your own statements. Do not let your communications director or your press secretary write your tweets or your staffer write your tweets. Like, say them, do them yourself. Yeah. You know, because it's a way to, it is a this in this whole crisis of authenticity when everyone thinks politicians are bullshit Mm -hmm. and they think they're phony. If they see someone who's actually writing their own tweets and communicating themselves, that builds a level of trust with you and that politician that's Mm -hmm. hard to, hard to break. The level of carefulness and caution you need to not make mistakes is even worse on Twitter where it's meant to be a casual and informal medium. Trump is 100% right. It is extraordinarily effective at reaching the entire country with exactly what Trump wants to send. Uh-huh. The problem is it's undisciplined. It, you know, it's it's all over the place, right? The, the problem with the tweets is not that Twitter is ineffective at reaching people with a message. The problem is his message is either ghastly or inconsistent or some combination yeah. of both. Uh, if what, what what I think is clear, like what one lesson of Trump, how he uses Twitter is there is no price for the mistakes that he makes there really. Uh, and that the next Democratic politicians need to think, I need to just speak my mind here and see how it goes because knowing that I'm going to make a mistake on Twitter once in a while, I'm going to say something that's controversial. I'm going to screw up once in a while, but that the bigger risk is coming across as phony and overly cautious. And and having the right. and having the so, and, and 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 it's it, it, it and it's not wrong. Like we do need people who have the wherewithal and confidence in themselves and sense of sort of political courage to trust that what they think is is what they should be saying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every election, I believe, is a reaction to the previous election more than a race between two people. Yeah. You know, I think the, the bigger thing is a reaction. Maybe part of this is a reaction to rhetoric, you know, because Obama is such the big speaker. I mean, Johnson followed Kennedy, another great speaker, <laughs> followed by somebody who, who couldn't yeah. speak at all. The same thing with George H. Bush following Reagan, you know. Yeah. I don't know if it's a reaction to rhetoric as much as Obama was this cool, rational, cautious mm-hmm. in in the way he governed, at least. Right. And if there was a reaction to that, it was, we need action. We need things to happen faster. Mm-hmm. We need someone to fight. You know, Obama didn't want to fight all the time, right? He was, yeah. Yes. yeah. So that was that was the Trump reaction. But I think the way that you're right on the rhetoric is mm-hmm. that if people have a bad reaction to what's become standard political rhetoric, it's yes. a reaction Extremely to bad. what's broken. But it's a reaction to what's broken words. with yeah. standard politics. Mm-hmm. That that when you hear political speak or what's become democratic political speak. You associate it immediately with the failure of things to feel like they're actually changing despite all the rosy words and all the promises and all the rest. And so, look, Trump is a black swan event. A lot had to go wrong for this to happen. But the conditions that made it possible, I think, connect the rhetoric to economic dislocation, to Mm -hmm. some of the fear of the media and the mistrust. There is a collection of societal failures that Trump was like a well, you know, (laughs) a well-evolved virus to attack the host. But when you you looked at that debate stage, when you looked at that debate stage with Trump and all those Republicans, like Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush and a bunch of other ones, they... They all sounded like the teacher in Charlie Brown, right? Compared yeah. to Trump, it was just like blah 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 blah, and then there was Donald Trump. Yeah. And every once in a while, Ben Carson would say something crazy or yes. a couple of, and the same thing happened. And Christie was supposed to be that person. And Christie was, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Even Christie sounded blah blah yeah. blah compared once, to him. Once Trump started speaking, and yeah. it wasn't. I mean, the reason I think on the Democratic side that Bernie made some headway is because Bernie didn't sound like every other Democrat. Yeah. You know, like it wasn't just a unique problem of Hillary. 
Clinton, like in 08, you know, Chris Dodd and all those other candidates that were up there on stage on the Democratic side, they all sounded very same, too. Yeah, it, and, and Barack so, Obama didn't. So in some ways, there is kind of a reaction to political speak. Yeah. Like that Trump was speaking to. Like in when you talk about the other candidates, to me, the turning point was the Megyn Kelly debate where he said uh, – where he made the joke about only Rosie O'Donnell. You know, right. that is nothing any politician would say. You know, you say that in a bar. <laughs> you know, you don't say that in, at any political event. And it was applauded. Guys, it, there was not a gasp. It was met with huge applause. It's, it's, mm-hmm. a, uh, it's like a shibboleth. You know, people still to this day when polled, what, what, one of the things that comes up over and over again at Trump is he says what he really thinks, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's, and, but, of course, he's said to be really dishonest, Right. How do you how do you put those things together? Well, it's because you get the sense that he's unfiltered and he is mm-hmm. and he is. He you know, he has he, he has a few rules in his head. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you do feel as though you're getting uh, 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 more of him than you get from a Jeb or Rubio or any mainstream Democrat. And but, but this is a proc. This is a proximate problem. It's not the deeper problem. The fact that there was this hunger for someone who would do that mm-hmm. is not because the words were stale. It's because the words were tied to a failed political order that people no longer trusted in full. Right. Do you, Do you think everything is different now from this point on? Do you think other politicians now have to find a way to match that type of authenticity that both Bernie and Trump was able to use to connect with people? I do, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I hesitate because you say this and then people are like, oh, what, you want people to lie and say <laughs> offensive things? It's um, like, no, no, I don't, I, I don't think that's the route. But I think that mm-hmm. there's somewhere in the middle, which is, you know, don't, don't say horribly offensive lies like Trump does, but also don't just take the words that your pollster and consultant gives you and just spit them out, you know, and don't use the same cliches that Democrats and Republicans have been using for the last 20 years. Like, find new, honest, gritty, interesting ways to talk about your positions and your issues. And and also talk to people like you'd be talking to them at a bar, like, and you're having a conversation with your friend and trying to persuade your friend about something. Use the language you'd use in that situation. Because you instantly find if you try to use the words that you hear in Washington, that you feel ridiculous. That's (laughs) hilarious. You would feel ridiculous. Like, you're like, well, actually, wages are rising by (laughs) 2.5. It's not the way people talk. The the other part of this is policy. Yes, Uh, that's not the way people talk. That's very... (laughs) No no, one says wages. You're you're absolutely right. (laughs) Wages. Yeah. My wages My are low. My wages. No one says wages. <laughs> I need you know? skills. Do you have any skills? Yeah, maybe I, Elmer Fowler I need an economy that works for me. I need an economy that will help me get the skills I need to succeed in the 21st century. Yeah. Nobody I, refers to the fucking century <laughs> that we're in ever. Only politicians do that. I what are you ha- talking well, about? I want a hand up, not a handout. I need a politician who puts the middle class in the middle of his priorities. That's what I thought. In the 21st century, (laughs) Larry. Yes, I The century we are in. (laughs) I thought we made a bridge to this century. Everyone should be here by now. But uh, that was my problem with the Hillary campaign was was rhetoric more than anything else. Because I, like with Trump, I, you could disagree with him, but you knew what he wanted to do. I want to build a wall. You know, I want to change trade. I want to change our agreements. You know, I want you to do this. Hillary's was, I'm with her. I was like, but, duh. And again, yeah. like, I, and I, th- I think. It was hard for me to figure out. I couldn't pinpoint 
And I'm look, I was looking at this very coldly, too. I was trying to pinpoint, what's the one thing that she wants to do? Like, what's the action word? You know, I want to do this for you. And I couldn't ever pinpoint it, you know. Because campaigns are very adept at allowing you to paper over your true motivation for mm-hmm. wanting to be president and what you'll do. And you can go whole campaign without doing that because there's this entire apparatus around you mm-hmm. that tells you you can go out and just, here's your policy position, here's your soundbite, here's what polls well. So it's like, it's not to just beat up on Hillary because if you lined up 15 other Democrats mm-hmm. and put them in Hillary's place in Hillary's campaign, they may have performed just like she did. I think that people like Obama, Bernie Sanders, are more the exception than the rule, you know. Like I know because to me, mm-hmm. the Hillary watching the Hillary campaign was a lot like being on the Kerry campaign in two thousand and four. And I also think whatever mm. that, that a lot of the problems you that look we lost. Why did we lose? Well, you can look to the unique qualities of the candidate, or you can look at some sure. deeper problems. And I think it's more to learn from looking at uh, uh, the deeper problems that continue. And I think uh, for for good and for ill. Uh, the Hillary campaign in 2016 reflected a lot of Democratic consensus around what it meant to be electable, mm-hmm. what it meant to be liberal, what it meant to uh, 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 what it meant to answer the challenges that people felt like they had in their lives. Now, mm-hmm. you say like, oh, well, what could we pinpoint as what what she stood for? You know, Hillary Clinton gave a ton of economic policy speeches with a lot of really good policy in them. Maybe you're right, and they didn't coalesce around one simple idea, but also that never broke through because Donald Trump was there. And what would break through? The attack on him, yeah. the rhetoric around him, I mean, and that problem is going to continue. I mean, for all the Bernie stuff, she had one of she she ran on the most progressive platform any Democrat has ever run on, more so than Obama. Right, but I guess what I'm saying for the lay person, person that's not into politics, right. if they had know a little bit about, it, and I said, what did Bernie want? They'd say free college, right. you know. What did Trump want? A wall. What did Hillary want? Uh, to be president? You right. Know? right. Well, so I, that's, yeah. And, so and I, that's what I mean. That, I think that's that, important. The dinosaur. What reaction, is the What is know? the big idea? What Let's, is the big policy? Well, people, because we always say, oh, people aren't interested in policy and details and stuff like that, but they. They remember that Trump wanted a wall and he wanted a ban, mm-hmm. and and I think Paul, so. I, and you know, we, we the, and they remember the, that Obama was against the Iraq War. That was a, that was a big. There's one a in complicated LA. relationship between yes, and policy and, and, and politics. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a complicated relationship. So policy, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump barely had policies. Right, he had a few sentences. Yes, Hillary Clinton had pages and pages of policy. Some of them great. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, some of them I think maybe you know not as far to the left as I would want, but whatever. There were lots right. and lots of proposals. Um, but they were well thought through, very intelligent, solid. But the mm-hmm. but part of the problem none of them is, framed in a big way, right? And be, and people didn't trust that DC policy ideas were are real, right? They're not for yeah. me. I don't see them. I don't feel them. In part because there is a democratic consensus that said things like free college. Oh, that's crazy. That's yes. outside the realm. Yeah. Or, you know, things that used to be Democratic New Deal proposals, kind of the 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 the, the realm of possibility, I think, had gotten shrunk down. I think it got shrunk down from the right because of pressure from Republicans. Then it got shrunk down uh, 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 from the left because of a donor class. And 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 the result is this 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 exhausting and tiny band of possibilities. And I think yeah. one thing that will come out of Donald Trump winning is those things can come crashing down. Yeah. That that we can open our open our open our sort of minds to bigger, bolder, simpler proposals that in a previous generation of Democrats would say, oh, you can never get that just, done. Just politically, it is extremely hard to run as the wet blanket. 
<laughs> yes. It, and, and, and she should have known That's that because yeah. she did the same thing against us in 08. Yeah. You know, every time Obama would say something, she's like, hope and change. And he's all these, yeah. you know, big ideas, but he's not realistic. Like no one's realism isn't like driving people to the polls. Yes. And, the, and the Republicans would I do that with, with that. Donald Trump, too. They would say, oh, yeah, he, he you know, we're we're tough on immigration, too. His wall is a ridiculous idea, though. It's not realistic, the wall. But here's my immigration plan. People are like, I don't want to hear your re- more realistic immigration. Plan. I yes. want the wall. I want the wall. Yeah, it's you know the expression which you know you guys are familiar with the campaign and poetry, government in prose. Yeah, it seemed like Hillary was campaigning in prose. Yeah, and she has a re- yeah. you know she was it, she would probably say it, it's a responsibility gene, and she didn't want to yes. throw out these grand ideas that she couldn't pay for and didn't know how they'd get done. Right, um, which is a totally reasonable thing. You know, sure. it's yeah. it, let's it's the other thing that no but, no and yeah. also. You know, I think, you know, I see you see reporters kind of go back and forth. You know, the people will be like, this is, you know, emails is what led to this reminder. They talked about emails. They talked about emails. Then the reporters come back. It's like she didn't do this. Her campaign made this mistake. She made these speeches, all that stuff. Campaigns ultimately through the press, through politics, through events, through conversation are supposed to help us figure out who would be the better president Mm -hmm. unequivocally, objectively. Hillary Clinton should have won that election on the merits, but she didn't. Why not? Well, the Electoral College, voter ID, the media, uh, email coverage, the mistakes of her own campaign, the flaws she brought to the table, all of that's true. But the fact that she's not president is a, is a, is a grand mistake that we're all responsible for in one way or another. Because, uh-huh. because if, if a campaign didn't help you figure out the right person— that then something is really broken. I we're, look all, at it, we're all to blame. I know. <laughs> I look at it way more simpler than that, and I I, I really think that you're right. But it, to me, when I, when I say the when people distill it to one thing, I look at when I look at all the elections, it almost comes down to who people just like better. It almost is that simple. And sometimes it's it's almost a who's more charismatic in between the which two is, people, which is true, and it's it's an indictment of. Are yeah. like it's television, obs- television obsessed media culture. Yeah, right? I remember I mean, the is- Kennedy Nixon debates. Kennedy won on television. Nixon won on radio. You know, you couldn't see. And and by, and by the way, you know, one other part of this too is mm-hmm. thirty years of being in the public eye and bearing the brunt of a lot of sexism and right. humiliating coverage. Yeah, uh, I think did change the way. Hillary Clinton approach for politics. sure. No, yeah. and I know that. No, she's of course. A, she's a product. She's she's a product of her environment. And so, yeah. and so, there is this premium on authenticity, which is a fake thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that that, right. that 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 striving for authenticity is inherently a paradox because you're reaching for something that, if you're seeking it, it means you're not doing it naturally, which means it's not real. But on top of that, when we talk about authentic politicians, all of a sudden, when those traits are in a female candidate. They're treated differently, yeah. right? Like we, we've seen the real Hillary Clinton get angry about things and get passionate about things and talk about children and family. And somehow those aren't the authentic presidential traits mm-hmm. that we're looking for, you know? Yeah. If you're telling me America has a problem with women leading, I'm not going to argue with I you. I wish you would stop saying that oh. sexism isn't a problem in the United States. <laughs> Both of you, the two of you, look at you. I wake up and I just start saying it. <laughs> okay. I want to get to a quick issue before we go. And I appreciate you guys talking about this because I thought what a great opportunity to talk with you guys just about language and framing things and all that stuff. But uh, today, as we're recording this, uh, uh, President Trump, through Jeff Sessions, uh, decided to get rid of DACA, which was um, signed by Obama as an executive action, I believe, which I'm always a little wary of the executive actions because they right. 
just be gone away with so easily. Oh, we've certainly learned that now. Yes, it's true. You know, like you, you can't get too excited about anything that's an executive action. Um, I, but I want to talk about the word itself, dreamer, mm. you know, that's at the heart of this. What do you think of that word? Because I think it's interesting when people come up with words to frame things. Like I think what hurt the um, the Affordable Care Act was when Republicans started calling it Obama, you know. And Obama tried to embrace that and everything, which, you know, for better or for worse, whatever, he made a joke out of it, which is a fun thing to do. But a lot of people reject it because it's Obamacare, not that it's the Affordable Care Act. So words, I think, are important. Yeah. What do you think of the word dreamer in this It's argument? so funny. We just recorded our podcast today, mm-hmm. and I just went off on this in the podcast. Oh, because great. It's not, I didn't even go off on dreamer. Now mm-hmm. it's... Now it's DACA recipient, right? Because wow. the program is called DAC, is, is the Deferred Action Childhood Arrival Program. So it's become a benefit. Now or, it's, right yes. now you're a recipient, yes, right? A recipient. You're a DACA recipient. Uh-huh. And so we're like, what are we going to do with the DACA recipients? First of all, no one knows what the fuck DACA is. <laughs> also, all we do is just. You got to pay money. You don't like, it's not. Yes, you I don't know. receive it's, DACA. It's well, putting money into the coffers. We know. You yes. give us DACA. This is the worst thing about Washington. I think $800 million, dollars, I think, yeah, uh, came in because of DACA. $500. Every yeah. person's $500 for two year per. But yes. we, in, in Washington, all they do is they name these programs, they get them into acronyms, and then they use the fucking acronyms yes. and assume that everyone else in the country is paying attention and knows the acronym. Right. But what it does in this case is it's separate, it, it makes them a separate class of people. Mm-hmm. And the whole argument that we're trying to make is that these are Americans in every single way yeah. except their paperwork. They live here. They work here. They serve in the military. They, don't have they contribute else to, to this country. They're not from, they're not there from is no anywhere other else. They are, they are Americans. Correct. They are Americans. And I don't know that the answer is to figure out what's the better name for them. I think mm-hmm. the answer is to just describe what they are, which yeah. is Americans who came here when they were young and their parents were undocumented and they're you know and and they yes. need to be protected. Um, yeah, and so I, I, I do think that at a time where we're trying to figure out or emphasize our commonness and what brings us together. Um, it using terms like that sort of separates them off. It sort of has the unintended, it's probably an unintended effect, of course. Yeah. But. I mean, I think, I think dreamer is better than DACA recipient. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and I think dreamer, sure. you, you, I think it's probably a step too far from, it's from the American dream. These are people with the American dream like anybody else, yeah. but mm-hmm. so they're dreamers. They dream of being able to sort of go to school and have jobs and live their lives like anybody else. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is, you know, we, we, we haven't come to a way of talking about this because you, you talked about this today and I think it's right, which is they're Americans in every way, but one, so we, but, but when you, if you were to say, oh, these are Americans, it is a little confusing because the whole issue turns on the fact that they deserve the chance to stay here, you right. know? So you need something a little bit different, which is why I think dreamers worked for a while though. You know, I talked to, uh, uh, an undocumented young person who's mm-hmm. re- received, who is a DACA recipient, <laughs> and uh, we didn't use the term. We didn't use the term dreamer. We didn't use the term dreamer, and yeah. I, I, you know, we didn't get to talking about it because we weren't going to use the term. But I wonder why uh, she was uncomfortable with it because, but, but you know, she wants to be called an undocumented young person because that's that's what she is, and it's as simple as that. What yeah. do you think of the term? Well, it's funny because I love words and the way to me. I don't find dreamer an effective word only because I don't think all dreams deal with reality. You know, it puts it into this thing that isn't supposed to be dealt with. Like to me, they are undocumented Americans. Yeah. I I think they are Americans who don't have documents. They haven't been properly given their American rights. You know, it's different from because they were brought in as children and they grew up here. And as you say, right, this is the only place they know. Many of them, some have served in the military and these types of things. 
And the only thing they didn't do was was be born here. Right. <laughs> right. Undocumented American yes. is the closest. I think, yes. I, I think, I think that's so right. Too. As yeah. opposed to an undocumented immigrant, which is different. Immigrant is also a category, right? It's just yeah, very... but I think immigrant is very specific. I think that is an intention that someone does. You, you, know. co- you come here. You immigrate. Exactly. Yeah, you but immigrate I think here. when you're a child, you, you don't have that intention. You're with your family, you know. Yeah. It's also um, just <laughs> this is a manufactured crisis. Yeah. Uh, that's but it sure. is funny. And, it's, and, and the reason Remind we should also it. mention that the reason they're called DACA recipients and stuff like that is because reporters have to make a decision about what they say. And mm-hmm. reporters would feel that by calling them undocumented Americans, yeah. they are imposing a value judgment on that because that's taking a side in the debate. Yes. And there's this, <laughs> you know, there's this and feeling be, that you must be unbiased, right? And that to say that they're undocumented Americans is to show bias as a reporter. And so thus you get DACA recipients. Well, I would say like what I would, I think that the most faithful way to describe them is to describe them and say, uh, young people, uh, uh, undocumented, but who came to America as children and know no other country. I mean, yeah. it just, I think if you say that to people, you yeah. don't need a slogan, you don't need an acronym, you don't sure. need a soundbite. You just tell, these are people who came here as babies yeah. because their parents came here illegally. And in the United States, we don't punish children for the sins of their parents because uh, it's unconstitutional and morally reprehensible. Um, last thought. So I'm sure you guys are enjoying doing uh, your podcasting and that. Do you think Pods are a good place for political change of where it can start now, or um, what, is, uh, what is your thought on that? I think that the the format of a podcast is the type of format we need if we hope to have more nuanced mm-hmm. political conversation Real that's discussion. not based on sound bites. I mean, yes. I, I find that like I don't I don't do cable television anymore because. I don't want to sit on the way to the studio and think like, fuck, I need, I need to figure out my soundbite and my message in the 30 seconds they give me before some other asshole starts screaming at me from the other side of the set. That, that's so horrible. And I'd rather, I'll sit across the table with Republicans and conservatives and have like a, a long conversation in a podcast because I know that there's less chance that things will be taken out of context and we can argue back and forth and have a nuanced conversation. Drive across town. Trump, what's his problem? When we come back. <laughs> the, uh, it becomes circus news in that yeah, I mean, look, we talked about 2016, and one of the things we, we saw is political coverage is not answering the challenges of how you cover someone like Donald Trump. I think they're doing better now in the wake of his win, but... Um, the journalism is good. Yeah, it's the, the punditry is broken. Yeah. Punditry analysis. is deeply broken. Yeah. And, 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 and be- analysis. And analysis. And so because of that, there mm-hmm. is a hunger. It's, it's not just that it's wrong and facile. It's... It uh, similar to the rhetoric problem we talked about. It speaks in a language no one uses. It's a dead yeah. language. You know the way people talk. You know I really think uh, Trump ought to. You know t- in tonight in this speech, I think Trump finally pivoted. And if you, able to, if you uh, ran into Wolf course Blitz, correct. If you ran into Wolf Blitzer at a bar and he talked to you like that, you would run the yeah, fucking like, other way. What do you way. think about Trump? Honestly, I think he's made some moves in the recent days. This shakeup, I think, will uh, happening now. Writing the ship. Finally, I think we're seeing some uh, some of this. Uh, uh, the committee to save America inside yeah. the administration finally making some changes. Changes. No, it's nonsense. So I, I and, and I think a, it's not helpful. But b, people don't like it. Like, it's not sustainable to have. Everyone hates political coverage. Everyone hates it. And you know, it's a we're still a we're st- we're still a free country, and people make their choices. And so people are turning to other forms of media. And I think podcasts can be one of those ways where people can yeah. get a more sincere, open, and intelligent conversation about politics. 
Well, I want to thank both of you guys, John Favreau, John Lovett. Thanks thank for having you. Us. This yeah. is great. And guys, if you haven't, please, Pod Save America, Pod Save the People, Impod We Trust is a good name. You guys <laughs> you should can, go with that. You can remember Love It or Leave It. Yeah, Love It or Leave It. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's one of my favorite I episodes. I was going Love It or Leave It. I was saving the best for last. <laughs> <laughs> love It or Leave It was so much fun. I got more response from Love It or Leave It than almost did I get from my own. <laughs> I think it's that audience. It's so much fun doing it in front of that audience. It's a crazy thing doing it. You were fantastic, by the way, Thank you. Uh, uh, it's it's crazy to do a live political conversation at a comedy club yes. every week, and we're talking about heavy stuff sometimes. Yeah. But it's but it's been really it's been really fun and interesting and really smart. I thought to have Tim Miller on, who gave that uh, the the cut the cut zone. So the funny. audience, really we had a Republican named Tim that. Miller come up and yes. do these little rants from the Republican perspective, and they were yeah, great. But really smart and kind of he did a good job. Yeah, kind of like yeah, fuck you guys too type <laughs> of thing, but really smart. But thanks, guys. Uh, Cricket Media. These are the boys right here. <laughs> Saving America one pot at a time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thank Larry. you.